Podcasts come and go. Blogs perish. Fan fiction disperses, coalesces, forms into forums. Other words. Nothing can be the Doctor Who Podcast. For your listening pleasure, this episode brings you the DWP's review of Jago and Lightfoot Series 1, the re-teaming of the Talons of Wen Chiang duo in audio format. And we also bring you an exclusive and very exciting interview with Henry Gordon Jago himself, Christopher Benjamin. So please enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who Podcast. In the camper van with me today is James. Hello, James. Hello, Trevor. Wonderful to be here again, particularly to speak about, I think, two of my favourite companions from the classic series. Oh, you said that C word, didn't you? <laughs> they are companions in my mind. They're, they're more companions to me than Chameleon and certainly Mel and many others as well. These are fantastic characters. Well, let's not keep our listeners in the dark for too much longer. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Jago and Lightfoot. They've got their own Big Finish series. Series 1 uh, was released last year, and uh, Series 2 is going to be released, I think at this stage, around January 2011. Mm. In this episode, we want to review the first season of uh, Jago and Lightfoot. Thank you for coming so prompt, Professor. Your message did suggest some urgency, Sergeant Quick. Not for this poor blighter. But from the look of him, I thought it best not to hang around. Good gracious. What's happened to him? I rather thought that was your department, sir. I'm not sure this falls into anyone's department, as you put it. Evidently, these wounds were the cause of death. Some sort of animal, you think, Professor? Quite possibly. You know, this poor fellow's been dead only an hour or two. But his body is completely drained of blood. When I first heard about Jago and Lightfoot being released, I thought, hmm, what, what an interesting thing for Big Finish to do. Because what you're basically doing is you're taking two characters from one story that was transmitted in the mid-70s and then suddenly in the 2010s or 2009 or whenever they decided to do these stories, they're giving them their own audio series. So you've got a story, The Talons of Wen Chiang, which maybe not a lot of people remember, and those that remember it maybe don't remember Jago and Lightfoot as well. So Big Finish goes, well, let's give them their own series. But my initial trepidation was, was totally washed away uh, upon listening to them because the, the first season of Jago and Lightfoot is, is an absolutely mesmerising listen. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, I'm sure we'll get into details where we can have a bit more of a debate, Trev. But uh, for the time being, I have to say, I think this series is probably the most successful mini-series that Big Finish have done. And 
that's not just in terms of opinion. They've commissioned, and some people have said Big Finish have actually recorded a third series already. Now, if you remember a good few years ago, not even the Cybermen could do that. <laughs> they, they came up with their own little mini-series for Cybermen, and it's taken them about four years to get two series recorded, and there's no plans for a third. So where Cybermen have failed, Jago and Lightfoot have succeeded. Well, I think we're lucky with uh, with series like Jago and Lightfoot because basically you're just relying on actors. I mean, with, with these sort of stories, because of the setting because of the time period, you know, the late 1900s. They're stories that are built on the performances of the actors involved rather than having to worry about special effects or post-production. And and that's where the Jago and Lightfoot series really, really shine because due to the title characters, it's like they've walked out of the talents of Wen Cheyang straight into this series. I think that's really exemplified, actually, in the very first story in the series, which is called The Bloodless Soldier, written by Justin Richards. And I, I think... The reason why your point is so apt and so correct, Trev, is because this story is nothing special. If you were to take Jago out of it, I don't think this story would hold people's attention particularly. I mean, I think it's quite well crafted and I think, you know, it, it's vaguely interesting, but it's certainly nothing groundbreaking in terms of storytelling. Um, the real success factor here is purely Jago and Lightfoot, Christopher Benjamin and Trevor Baxter, they, they, as you say, walk out of their story uh, with Tom Baker absolutely intact. There is no change, and I would stretch that even to their voices. There's very little change uh, to the way they sound. And, that, and that's something you can't even say about Colin Baker or um, Peter Davison. You know, their voices have noticeably changed over the last 10 years or so when they've been recording big finishes. And yet these, um, these two actors have, have clearly got a camaraderie and they are absolutely fantastic to listen to. And even if the story was exceptionally poor, then I would still want to listen. And, and I think that's a massive compliment to these two actors alone. I didn't put them into my CD player really wanting to listen to a story. I, I wanted to hear the... Uh, I suppose, byplay between the characters, because that's the way Robert yeah. Holmes created them in the 70s. I mean, for anyone that knows their Doctor Who history, Robert Holmes loved creating what are called double acts, two characters that bounced off each other for an entire story. And you know, they're almost like a sort of a comedy mm. duo to a certain extent. And and I think one of the most perfect examples of that is, is Jago and Lightfoot. And they've transplanted that wonderful relationship they both have, because they're two... Very, very different people, but I suppose, like, like the old adage goes, opposites attract. You know, you, you have one very down-to-earth, almost common man put side by side with an yeah. upper-class gentry doctor. No, you're right, and it's interesting how you talk about Robert Holmes' pairings, because you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a, it's a plot device. Is it a plot device? It's probably not the right term of phrase, but it's, it's something that he does to great effect in several of his stories. However... Jago and Lightfoot, the characters themselves, didn't meet until episode five of Talons of Wang Chien. So they had no dialogue at all for the vast majority of that particular story. And the fans seem to have forgotten that completely. So there has been a little bit of an advancement from the end of Talons to the beginning of, well, what I suppose is the Mahogany Murderers. Um, that's, that's the next concurrent uh, adventure that the two characters have together after Talons. Um, but people seem to think that, yes, you know, Talons of Wing Chien mm. was a Jago and Lightfoot fest. And it wasn't. It really wasn't. Um, Christopher Benjamin actually said that, uh, you know, he kind of played 
Dr. Watson, really, to Tom Baker's Sherlock Holmes. And I think that's probably true. And when he wasn't doing that, he was doing it to uh, to Lightfoot's character. You know, it's, there has actually been a significant jump in the relationship between the two lead characters from what we last saw on television to the Big Finish format. It's a cart. Heavily laden by the signs of it. It's coming this way. I suspect that cart is full of a black ore from the ships that the policeman talked about. I need to take a closer look. Blackfoot. This is a pretty narrow alley. I'm not sure there's room for us in that cart at the same time. Good point. There's a deep doorway back there. Let's see if we can't get out of the way. A tight squeeze. Needs musto, man. What's that smell? Sorry, that's me. My housekeeper is trying to learn how to cook Chinese food. Why, why is she doing that? I think she's trying to woo me. You know I spent some years in China. Yes, you mentioned it. What's wrong with a good steak and kidney pudding? It's a wonderful range of stories within this uh, four-story first season. We go all the way from grave mm. robbers to seances to blood-sucking beasts. And we lead all the way to the last story of the season, the similarity engine, which which ties back to the story you, you just mentioned there, James, the mahogany murders. Mm, murderers. Murderers. Absolutely everybody, including the guys who are actually in that play, call it mahogany murders. It was the mahogany murderers. Ah. <laughs> not that I'm one for detail in any way, shape or form. But uh, in all honesty, I'm not because I miss some things that are very obvious. <laughs> but I know that's one thing that, uh, that that quite missed, I think, by fandom. But but anyway, you're right. Um, episode four, The Similarity Engine here, uh, it was written by Andy Lane and he was the author of The Mahogany Murderers. Um, although this is a, you know, holistic set of stories and they do link they do closely link into the mahogany murderers companion chronicle that i think was released probably 18 months or so ago now and i know that was was one of was that one of the very first companion chronicles you listened to trevor and really really enjoyed i think it was i remember being quite enthusiastic about mm, it when we reviewed yeah, it on the yeah Hoo-Cast. i think so too um, yeah and and i think honestly it is a brilliant set of plays i mean the atmosphere as well that it creates you know a dark smoky london uh, lots of pubs just next to king's cross station where you can hear trains in the backgrounds and it moves to seances that are very very spooky and again fit in perfectly with victorian london it's got the right level of sci-fi permeates its way into all of these particular stories even the concept of time travel is introduced in in episode four, which works absolutely perfectly. And I, I, I just like it. Even the supporting casts uh, are pretty good. Now, all, all four plays are directed by Lisa Bowerman, um, who is probably better known to fans as Bernice Summerfield. She did actually feature in Survival as a Catwoman, I seem to remember as well. Um, but she, um, mm. she directs all of these plays, and she also plays the part of Ellie, um, the barmaid in all four plays. Yes, it's interesting you mentioned Ellie, actually, because that's that's one of the things I really enjoyed about these stories too, was not only do we get our, our fix of Jago and Lightfoot, but they also start building up some of the back characters too. Um, Ellie the barmaid, and um, one of the characters that appeared very briefly in the original Towns of Wen Chiang, Sergeant Quick, he, he becomes much more of a prominent character in this too. Mm, he does. He's received promotion since Talons. He was constable at the time. And he's sergeant now, so it's good to know that his career is progressing as well. I mean, we've we've talked 
for a very brief period of time about this series, really, but we haven't said anything at all remotely negative. I mean, was there any part of this series that you thought didn't work or they could have done better? I think I'm in agreement with you. I, I listened to the first story and went, hmm, it didn't really set me on fire. I, I really wasn't that thrilled with it. I got to the end of the first one. I mean, it's it's a very basic story about... Um, you know, a guy be- being turned into a beast, basically, and ha- yeah. and then having to deal with it and chase it down before it destroyed all of London or something like that. <laughs> um, so, as 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 a story itself, it wasn't that interesting. But I think once they got to the second story onwards and they started dealing with some more interesting topics, um, the the story where they went to the gentlemen's club was very interesting. Oh, that what that was the second one. That was the Bell of a Devil. And and the third one where uh, the uh, barmaid Ellie was getting interested in seances yes. and all the stuff to do with that. That was really interesting. And and then I think, like we've already said, the similarity engine, the, the, the fourth one, was nice because it tied in with the original Jago yeah. and Lightfoot uh, story. So it got a lot better as it went along. But I think if I'd been a casual listener and just listened to the first one, I, I might have stopped listening. No, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, it, it, it's interesting also in what you say in terms of the um, the link between Mahogany Murderers and the Similarity Engine, because the character of Dr. Tulp, who is very present in Mahogany Murderers, is actually in the background for this entire series. And uh, he's mentioned in all of the plays, I think, um, or he's referenced, or they meet characters who have met Dr. Tulp, and it's only in episode four, The Similarity Engine, where you actually get to hear his voice. But um, going back to our earlier point, uh, in, in terms of story and so on, I mean, I, you know I agree with you about the first story, and it's just the interplay that keeps it alive. The second story, The Bell of a Devil, written by Alan Barnes, again, I didn't know who had actually written this until I'd listened to it and went back to check, because I suspected it was Alan Barnes, because this was one particular story I could not follow. Um, and, it did, and it didn't matter. And I'm actually going to quote, so I'm going to quote one of our fellow podcasters here. And he said, small little things like um, the plot, just to enjoy the characters interplay. <laughs> and do you know what? I thought that was such a brilliant line because I lost that story about halfway through completely. And oh, I was a little bit, really? little bit frustrated at that, yeah. And yet the reason I continued to listen was because you had Jago ever so politely being asked to step into a bowl full of wet cement. And when he asked why, they said, well, it's so much easier to, to drop you off the side of the boat so that you sink then. And it's all very polite. Mm. And it's just the way the characters interplay with each other and they interpret what I think is quite a complex and convoluted script. And, um, yeah, I, I just... Just loved all of these uh, stories, really. Yeah, but <laughs> now it's my turn to be surprised, I suppose, because I mean, I'm I'm usually the one that gets confused and bored if if, <laughs> if a script gets too convoluted. But um, I, I think for me, there was a difference between a script being confusing and a script keeping you purposely in the dark for most of the story, which which I think this one had to. I mean, without giving anything away. I think if we'd learnt what we'd learnt at the end of the story at the beginning, then, you know, there wouldn't be much of a story there oh, anymore. Oh, very there, true. There yeah. wouldn't have been the mystery to f- figure out. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't feel confused. I, I just felt that we were getting a, an answer eventually. And, mm. again, I'll come back to that thing that I think because Jago and Lightfoot were holding me by the hand and guiding me through it, that's what kept me with it. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's precisely what kept me with it too. 
And, and yet that particular story, I think, was relatively short. It's under the hour mark, I think. And yet by the time I got to that point, I, I, I didn't understand where I was or, or what was going on. And I think it was just a little bit too difficult for me. I mean, perhaps I wasn't listening to it in the best environment. I wasn't focusing on it as much as I should have done or perhaps didn't give as much attention to it as I gave the other stories. But that was the one that I enjoyed the least. I wasn't overly impressed with the story to the first episode either, but certainly Jonathan Morris's Spirit Trap was was absolutely fantastic, fun all the way through, perfect um, depiction of London and of the characters, and Andy Lane's The Similarity Engine, absolutely brilliant, the best story of the lot, and uh, I hope to see a few more Jago and Lightfoot scripts for him over the coming um, couple of series. Gentlemen, good day to you. No, that sounds like I'm already saying goodbye. Henry Gordon Jago's farewell tour, coming to a theatrical venue near you soon. <clears throat> Gentlemen, good morning. I understand that you are in need of a theatrical impresario for your fine establishment, and I am just the man to fulfill that need. The name of the Royal Theatre Walthamstow echoes in the annals of thespian history, and I will burnish that name with a fervour the like of which you have never seen before. <laughs> Just one final thing, you know, from, from a purely commercial point of view, and it's something we're always interested in with these mm. big Finnish releases, uh, the only way you can get your hands on Jago and Lightfoot is to buy all four at once. You certainly can't do the thing you do with the Doctor Who releases and pick a particular story and just download or buy the CD for that. I'm, I'm wondering what, what sort of decision that is, um, whether Big Finish is thinking that they're going to buy the whole lot because it's only four stories. Yeah, it, it's an interesting choice, this whole move to box sets. And you think about the Cyberman box set, Cyberman 2 box set, that is, and Iris Wild Time box set. And I know they've got a couple of more coming up fairly soon. I think they're releasing the Lost Stories for the first and second Doctor as box sets as well. I don't understand the decision, mm. and I know it's not my role to understand the commercial decision here, but when when you get down to Big Finish core audience, you're talking about fans of the classic series, not just casual viewers, absolute fans who are prepared to invest in a further range of Doctor Who products and stories, and then you're only going to have a percentage who are going to invest in a spin-off series. So I just thought it was interesting for Big Finish are now targeting a niche within a niche market. And then rather than allowing them, yeah. as you say, to download them for perhaps six, seven quid each, you've actually got to buy the entire box set. So it seems that they're targeting rich fans of Doctor Who spin-off series. <laughs> and I, I just find it an interesting decision, that's all. Maybe that's the word that they're trying to avoid, their niche they're trying to, I suppose, increase the niche because um, if they just market to Doctor Who fans, then they're not going to last very long. And if they only market to classic Doctor Who fans, yeah. they're going to last even yeah. less. So I think to appeal to anyone like new to Doctor Who or new to anything like this but have interest in audio dramas perhaps because, I mean, from what I understand, British radio has, has an incredibly strong tradition of radio plays. Oh, yeah. And... Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's something Big Finish could capitalise really well on if their marketing was pushed in the right direction. That this could work really well to someone who wasn't necessarily mm. a Doctor Who fan, but just had interest in like telefantasy or um, supernatural type of thing. Those kind of people would have to be above and beyond their core target market. And the reason for that is because... 
a company like Big Finish are absolutely going to be completely dependent on subscribers and regular income coming in. And this perhaps is why they may have targeted fans specifically uh, with a box set is because what, what is a fan? What is a typical Doctor Who fan like? I've got to have everything. If it's in a box set, I've got to have the box set. If it's a new box set, I've got to get the new box set for the new cover and for that five minute extra that wasn't on the original release, you know. And perhaps Big Finish are plugging into the kind of fan gene that makes you think box set got to have it. And then mm. fans of radio and audio drama, I think would be a nice to have as well. Um, and I don't think, as far as I'm aware, they get any kind of real message out to that core audience. It's it, They're almost again their subscribers to promote it to their fans. And Doctor Who fans are generally quite evangelistical um, in, in terms of their passions. So maybe that's the way of doing it. I mean, I, Big Finish will never have a discussion about this and I would never expect them to have a discussion about it. This is basically how they stay in business. But I just find it interesting to observe their business strategies and they've, they've done the box set thing for some time now and in the same way that they've done the trilogy in the main range thing for some time now. And that was something else that I, I predicted wouldn't last and it has. So uh, maybe Big Finish knows something I don't. You never know. That possibility may exist. <laughs> mm. It's an interesting question anyway, probably one we should uh, talk yeah. about at some length yeah. at some point in the future. But uh, certainly for the for the meantime, we have season two of uh, Jago and Lightfoot to look forward to in early 2011. And for those out there who haven't tried mm. the first season, please do. It's, it's a wonderful way of getting a, a nice little, I suppose, tangential slice of classic Doctor Who. We've now got something really rather special for you. We were incredibly fortunate to get an interview with Christopher Benjamin, Henry Gordon Jago himself. Now, the bad news, well, at least from my point of view anyway, is that I couldn't make the dates that Francesca had arranged. So incredibly begrudgingly, I had to try and find somebody else who was free on that day to go and interview Christopher Benjamin and I'm very pleased to say that Luke stepped up to the mark. Luke from the Minute Doctor Who podcast. He was actually rather chuffed. I think he was really, really pleased to be able to meet uh, Christopher because it wasn't a phone interview. This was a one-on-one, -on -one, face to face interview. And I think Luke had a fantastic time. Here we are for the Doctor Who podcast. And I have with me uh, an actor who's appeared in the show on three separate occasions over 38 years, Christopher Benjamin. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. Uh, we're here at the rehearsal rooms for the, the Globe Theatre, as Christopher is currently in the Merry Wives at Windsor. How's that been going for you, Chris? Oh, it's a wonderful show. It's been great fun. We did two, two beauties yesterday. Marvellous audiences. You know, when you've got a marvellous audience at the Globe, it's an incredible experience. I don't know, it must feel like being a baseball player or something. <laughs> because, you know, the, the shears and everything at the yeah. end is incredible. Yeah. But it's very tiring. You can probably hear I'm croaking quite a bit now. But you're still fit enough to be riding around on a motorbike through, through the... Well, I'm, I'm regretting it tonight because <laughs> it was, a, it was a, a nightmare. The rain, incessant rain. And, of course, I hit all the rush hour traffic and, uh, and people don't like motorbikes wheedling their way through very much, although I was very tactful about it. And I did actually... I took the wrong way and I did actually get advice, polite, friendly advice from a taxi driver as to how to find London Bridge. So there we go. And you're about to head off on tour. I yeah, we're, well, this is why we're here now, because we have to have a completely new set. 
we have to sort of replicate as near as we can the globe set, but we can't have walkways out into the audience. There's no yard. We're going to play in standard um, proscenium arch theatres. And so we've got two different revolves. And so we, the sets change by being turned round on these revolves. Let's just hope they keep working all right. And if anybody wants to catch Christopher and the, and the, the production, uh, he's going to be in the States first. Yeah, we're going, we're going to Santa Monica. We do two weeks there, and apparently it was 113 degrees there the other day, so I don't know what it would be like. Bit of a change from this yeah. rotten old weather. And then we go from Santa Monica to New York, and we play at a university theatre there belonging to Pace University down in lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And then, wonderfully, we come back to Milton Keynes. <laughs> and everybody said, oh, oh, Milton Keynes, but Milton Keynes is actually a really nice theatre. So that's and there's good, comfortable theatre and a very good audience there too. And we go from there to Norwich and Richmond and Bath. And I think in Bath we expire, we finish. Right. I, do I, I don't mind, because as far as I can see, it's practically the end of my career anyway. Wow. And I started the beginning of my career in an amateur company in Bath, so I think it'd be quite nice to finish in Bath as well. Well, well I've got the dates for those. I'll give you those at the end of the podcast. Well, I say most of this is going to be focused on Doctor Who, but I, um, yeah. I did do a little bit of research on IMDb. You're a clever lad. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask the, the obvious question. Did you always want to be an actor? And, yes, uh, yes. I, from about the age of 15, when I was you, in school plays. How did you then get in from, from doing that as an amateur? How did you do you really want to know? It's terribly boring. Oh, it's interesting. People are interested in these well, things. Well, I, I, I did school plays, and I had, we had an absolutely dedicated... The headmaster's wife was in charge of all the school plays, and she was a sort of genius, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started off at the age of eight playing a, a man with a blunderbuss on a stagecoach. <laughs> and then, but then my main, first main part was Oberon in Midsummer Night's Dream, which I played in Barrage Balloon Silk. It was just after the war. It was right. about 1949-50, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I went on every year. We did a school play. Every year I had a wonderful part. Every year she encouraged me, wicked woman. And uh, one year, I mean, she said, summer holidays, Benjamin, go home and learn this. And it was the part of Beckett in Murder in the Cathedral. And in the middle of Murder in the Cathedral, he delivers a sermon. And I had to learn all my <laughs> summer holidays, learning T.S. Eliot sermon, and I think I was 15. But anyway, I got the taste for it. She encouraged me. She wrote to Rada mm -hmm. on my behalf and got me up to do a sort of mock audition because I had to do my national service. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I did this audition, and Rada wrote back and saying, well, we certainly, certainly would have accepted him on this audition and all this, that and the other. So then she, we did our last school play. She got Wilts County Council to come in and see it. And I got a grant from Wilts County Council to go to RADA after my national service. While I did my national service, I got a compassionate leaving um, posting because my father wasn't well. And so I, I stayed, I lived at home, helped him out in his shop, and, but spent most of my time doing amateur dramatics in Bath. Wow. That's how I started in Bath. Right. It was a very smart company called the Octagon Theatre Company. I don't think they exist anymore, but they were all, a lot of them were really good. One or two were very snooty, but one or two of them were jolly good actors anyway. So that's how it all started. And you're still here however many years well, later? Well, and then I went to Rada in 56. I left Rada in 58, and um, 
so it's, I've just been over 50 years now, haven't I? Right. The Internet Movie Database lists over 150 film and TV parts over the years. Well, mostly TV, I think. Mostly I've done TV. very few film. But you are still primarily a film, uh, a theatre actor. Yes. Is that true? Yes. Um, I am, um, partly because I don't get offered much in telly, or partly because um, I, I sort of don't have a lot of confidence in myself in front of a camera. I'd much rather be on a stage and showing off with people <laughs> laughing and clapping. But I don't know, how, as I say, I don't know how much longer I can keep it up. It's so difficult to learn words now when you get old. I started learning full stuff about three months before we started rehearsal. I still don't know it to be too quite honest. Well, I do know it, but I still go wrong. <laughs> Doctor Who is the main uh, yeah. reason that listeners to this podcast will know you, um, and particularly your, your character of Henry Gordon Jago. But your first appearance was with John Pertwee in his first series. That's right, that was Inferno. Inferno, as uh, Sir Keith Gold. Yes. How did, you, how did you get that part? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure whether I knew Dougie Canfield before or not. It was sad that he fell ill during that. Mm -hmm. But it was one of those parts that turned up. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's what started me off in Doctor Who. I don't know. I don't think that was the reason I got Jago. Mm -hmm. I think that was because David Maloney, I'd worked with him mm -hmm. on um, Forsyth Saga in yes. 1967 or my, uh, it was. my dad remembers that he, he said asking him about playing well, so your grandfather remember it too probably well yeah my, <laughs> if he was still if alive. he was still alive yes as what was it Prosper Profond Profond yes and I had to break the terrible news to Fleur that her dad was having it off with somebody as far oh. as I remember I think that was Pro it probably true no, no yeah. what a little of the story that I do so uh, what do you remember about the production of Inferno uh, very little apart from the sort of business with poor old Dougie and, mm -hmm. and the producer, what's his name, taking over? Barry Letts. Barry, Barry Letts. Yeah. What, what effect did that have on, on you as, as actors? Nothing, we just kept going. Just carried on? Yeah, yeah. And, and the regular cast, were, were they kind of welcoming? Yes, they were. They were, they were very, very pleasant, very nice. Was it Caroline John? Caroline John, yeah. Yeah, I still see her every now and then. Her brother lives in France and has a house near where my daughter lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, where I met him and... Um, we realised that we both knew Caroline. Were you a little disappointed that you didn't get to play two versions of Sir Keith? Because most people in that story got to play... Did they? The, the I, normal... can't, I can't remember. No, I don't think I was at all. I, <laughs> I, just, I just did it. I, I didn't mm -hmm. find the part terribly interesting, to be quite honest. And, mm -hmm. and I, you know, it's not a part one could shine in or anything. <laughs> just, I just did it. I had no ambitions otherwise than to learn the words and get the pay at mm -hmm. the end. I suppose you were playing a, a civil servant. So. Was I? Yes. <laughs> Obviously, Doctor Who's a big show these days. But yeah. Back then, it was only going for like six or seven years. Was there much kudos in, in getting a part? No, no, there? not at all. It was. Um, we thought of it as kids' television. Ah. We, we, all, we, all, we all watched it because our children watched it. Mm -hmm. So it was good for us to watch it because it gave us a street cred with the children, didn't it, at school. Mm -hmm. I think my kids were even too young, really, to, to watch it. No, they couldn't have been, could they? When did we do it? In 60, 73? Uh, 76. The first one was 70 with, with yeah. John Pertwee. Oh, no. And then my oldest girl was 15 by then, so okay. she'd probably grown out of him. And the, the youngest was probably sitting there with a cushion in <laughs> when the giant rat appeared. Yeah, yeah. Well, moving on to um, your, most, your most famous creation for, for Doctor Who, Henry Gordon Jago. How did, how did that come about? Was it you, oh, you said well, it was, I said that was, I, I think it, it was, yeah. I'm sure it was David Maloney. I never got the chance to ask him or to yeah. thank him. Lassie's no longer with mm -hmm. us, is he? 
And um, he was he was lovely and very patient because Trevor and I behaved rather badly. I think <laughs> we used to sort of get the fits of giggles. We were terribly unprofessional in those days. And you you said you know you, you start giggling and you and things have to stop and you've probably cost the BBC five thousand pounds or something. You know we didn't think of things like that. I'm probably exaggerating. <laughs> So you, you struck up a good rapport with Trevor Baxter yes. back, back then. Yes, and the, and as you as you know, the wonderful thing is, that at the time it was suggested that we should do a spin-off. This is what we hear mm-hmm. from from everybody who follows Doctor Who. <laughs> and a, I've our, read that somewhere. A wonderful yeah. writer died sadly, mm-hmm. and um, it never happened. But Big Finish have brought us back. They yeah. resurrected us. And we met again, I suppose, 30-odd years later, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And it was as though we'd never been away. And we, we get on famously. So what was, uh, what was Tom Baker like to work with? How different was he from, from John Pertwee? Uh, John Pertwee was more self-contained, I think. I thought, I've, I thought Tom gave more, you know. He, mm-hmm. was, he was more jolly and um, seemed to be enjoying himself a lot. And he seemed to be enjoying us, mm-hmm. whether he was or not. Mm-hmm. I think Trevor has this line when he said to Tre- Trevor, you can't have that line, that's my line. It's, good, it's a good laugh. Because <laughs> you effectively got to, got to play the Doctor's companion kind of for, for part of that story, really. I suppose so. Yeah. I suppose I'd never thought of that. Mm-hmm. I thought sometimes I was his Dr. Watson to his Sherlock Holmes. Mm, yeah. And then sometimes Dr. Watson to Trevor's. But you see, Trevor and I only met in the fifth episode. Exactly, yeah. yeah. That's the ridiculous thing. <laughs> it's as though we were in every episode. It feels like that. Yeah, yeah. Were you aware at the time that this was something special in terms of, in terms of Doctor Who? Because it's, it's, it's one of those stories which generally gets voted as being one of the top five stories I ever. don't know. No, we weren't. I, I mean, I was aware at the time that I was enjoying it immensely. Mm-hmm. It was one of the best parts I'd had mm-hmm. on television. And I, I, I just enjoyed it immensely. It was great fun to do a nice, juicy character. Mm-hmm. And he really well, still doing it. He lives on. And all these wonderful writers, they all seem to have picked up the mantle and the, they, they keep us going. Well, we'll come back to Jago in a bit after we talk about your, your most recent TV appearance. Playing, yes. another, playing another sir. Yes, I don't know why. I'm just sir. a humble boy from Wiltshire. <laughs> so Isn't Hugh it? Kirbishley in uh, The Unicorn and the Wasp. Yeah. Again, how did you how did you get that part? That was again knowing knowing the director, whose name escapes me at the moment, but I did know him. I still do know him. You can remember his name. Uh, uh, no, off the top, no, I didn't. Oh. Watch it. I, I, I watched it again the other day, and I, I didn't pay any attention to who directed oh, I it. I can't remember. So. His, uh, anyway, lovely chap. Lovely, you're a lovely chap if you're listening to this. <laughs> and I, I did an episode of um, a, a sitcom about the AA, which didn't go down very well, but I had a very funny part of them of a local squire driving a big Jaguar and, and going around in circles and things. And it was good fun, and I'm sure he suggested me for this, this other thing. So how different... I mean, obviously this was 30-odd uh, years after you first well, after you'd last appeared in the show. How different was it working on... Well, it was, suddenly, it was suddenly big-time television. Yeah. <laughs> you know, film units and hotels and uh, all on location, you know. Lots of money, beautiful costumes, everything done... It was you know, a terrific step up in in production values. And you got to sit in a chair for most of it. <laughs> yeah, I did, I did, and I've got a pair of brand new shoes, which are going to be offered at an auction sometime. And uh, I could, I, I've never worn them, and they and they were of course only used for me when I was in my wheelchair, and they had to look brand new. So if that auction ever appears, somebody must buy the shoes I wore in mm-hmm. Unicorn and the Wasp. So you had a lot of fun. 
making that making that story? Well, not as much fun as we had in in Challenge um, Wing Chun. No. It was, you know, we just we did it, and it was. It's so different filming, you know. Mm -hmm. You don't spend so much time together. You don't get to know each other. You, you sit around and go and do your bit, and then on it goes. You know? right. And sometimes it's out of order. Yeah. And um, it doesn't have the same camaraderie, really. Right. So you didn't have as much chance to get to know the, the main cast, David Tennant and and uh, Well, Tate. Uh, no. I mean, I I I worked with Felicity on something mm -hmm. else, and I sort of I knew knew her a bit from mm -hmm. that. Was that Rosemary in Time? Yeah, yeah, so, that's yeah. right. But I don't think I knew anybody else. Mm -hmm. Though, we, you know, you get chatting, you soon meet people, and then you go off and never see them again, maybe for 30 years, yeah. you know, <laughs> and then you meet up again. Yeah. And, it, and this is the marvellous thing in the profession, that you can, you can have nice, friendly relationships, and yet you can disappear, mm -hmm. and years later, pick up where you left off. And it happens to us all the time, because we, so many of our jobs are only for three weeks, mm -hmm. six weeks, eight weeks. You know. But in the, th in the theatre, of course, you spend much more time together, and much more time as a company. So, how, did, how does, again, how does David Tennant compare to Tom Baker and, uh, and John Pertwee as a, as a doctor? Well, I don't know, you can't compare them, can you? <laughs> They're all individual. I was full of admiration for his energy. Mm -hmm. Because I, I mean, it's it's it was a much he was working at a much greater mm -hmm. pace than the previous ones because, mm -hmm. the, you know, I suppose in the old days we were doing five episodes, weren't we? Mm -hmm. And there was pre-filming and then rehearsal and then studio, mm -hmm. but this is just all done in two weeks, three weeks, mm -hmm. you know. And he was non-stop, and I I thought he was terrific. And, I, and then I saw his Hamlet, you know, wonderful. He's a very fine actor. Would you come back if they asked you to, to do another one? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, of course. It wouldn't be the same, though. It wouldn't be the same part, would it? It couldn't no. be very well. Yeah. I don't know. I think I might have died at the end of that one. I, uh, I think you were still alive. Oh, but, I, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't think there's, there's much mileage in revisiting those characters. But, uh, no. So, big finish. Um, yeah. They came knocking at your door and said, would you like to play Jago alongside yes. Lightfoot again? Yeah. Were you surprised to be asked back to play that role? Well, yes, we were. We didn't know. We, it was a sort of tryout, really, the first one, which was just the two of us, mm -hmm. Mahogany Murders. And we enjoyed it terrifically and really rather secretly hoped it would take off, and mm -hmm. it did. And it's still going. Yeah. And there are plans for more <laughs> next year, so I'll have to delay my retirement. But, uh, you know, all sorts of interesting plans, too, which I don't suppose I'm allowed to divulge. Uh, no, well, I think... Uh, the bods at Big Finish would be a little unhappy. <laughs> yeah. You spilled the beans. Was it easy to step back into that role? Oh, you completely. Hadn't, you hadn't played him for like completely. What, 30 years. I mean, one is, one is completely dependent on the writers, really. Mm -hmm. if, they, if, they, if they understand the character, they can write the character and, and write it in the idiom and the rhythm mm -hmm. of the character, then you can do it. Mm -hmm. so, sometimes you have to wrench it around a bit and sort of try and force it a bit, but um, it, it is entirely dependent on how it's written, I think. And the voice, did that, did that come back quite easily? I don't know what the voice is doing. I'm, I'm never quite known that. I mean, I, I, I've, um, I haven't had a chance to listen to The Mahogany Murders, but I listened to the first part of the, the series that you've done, The, yeah. the Bloodless Soldier. Um, that's quite an emotional story for your character, isn't it? With the, the courageous action he has to take at the end. Well, don't I want can't to... remember what happened. <laughs> you have to shoot the guy um, <laughs> because he's turning into a monster. Oh, do I? Yes. yes. I can't remember. <laughs> We, we only do them in a day. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose so. Yeah. Have you have you 
found that you've you've been able to kind of follow that character development, or as you say, is it is it mostly just you do it and then it's a job and you move on, or do you do you invest yourself in, in emotionally in the character? No, I don't think so. I mean, one does it mm-hmm. and uh, enjoys it, mm-hmm. and Trevor and I enjoy our bit of repartee and mm-hmm. off stage and on, you know. Mm-hmm. And then it's on to the next thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it does vary slightly each one according to the particular writer yeah. and how much they themselves are into the characters. Mm-hmm. You know, people seem to think actors do so much of the work, but it's entirely dependent on the quality of the writing. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, you get wonderful notice if you play Falstaff. <laughs> it's nothing to do with me as Will Shakespeare, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. you know, he's written the great character, you know. You've got, you've got a wonderful part, you're going to get wonderful notices if you're half halfway decent as an mm-hmm. actor. And so you, you think the strength of, of Jago as a character is, is mainly down to... Yeah, if they, if they write a funny episode, like, you know, and, and, and the emotional episode, like doing what you say you had to do, which was shoot who did he shoot? He had to shoot a soldier who was mutated. Oh, that's right, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's right, yes, that was Ellie's brother, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So the, your current production, I understand there are uh, several other... Actors who've been involved with, with Doctor Who. Yes. Um, not least um, Barnaby Edwards. Yeah, Bar- Barnaby d- directed me in the first thing I did for Big Finish, mm-hmm. and the only thing I've done for Big Finish which wasn't Jago, and it was called something else. You might remember what uh, it was I, called. No, I, <laughs> myself, I, I I kept up with Big Finish for the first few years. All right. And then well, but no, Barnaby um, is a, he's a director stuff. and a writer and an actor. And he's he's in, he's in the play as well with you. Yes, he's take, he's taken over a part in this. He was, we've got the entire company except for three characters, and he's one of them. And he's just stepped into it just like that. And I think we've got we've got some others, haven't we, that have been in Doctor Who? Uh, let me let me. I do have a list Gareth, somewhere. Gareth. Have a list. Gareth Armstrong, yeah, from yeah. Uh, the Philip Mask of Mandragora. Philip Bird, yeah, yeah, who was a swampy in the Power of Kroll, apparently. Who was he? Yeah, he, it involved him. Um, Filming in a swamp, covered in green paint, and then they forgot to bring the uh, the solvent to the <laughs> to the swamp. So he was probably ask him about it. Ask him I think you'll enjoy that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, Sue Wallace. Oh yes, of course. Who, yes. Who's done some big finish stuff as yes. well. So that's uh, right, and she still does quite a bit, doesn't she? Looking back on your career, Doctor Who wise, and then and then kind of broader, what what are you most proud of? What do you look back on and, and think? I enjoyed that. That was good. That was a, a good. Good piece I think what I'm doing at the moment, I should say, not at any time, but this particular moment, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to be doing this lovely part and, as it were, at the fag end of my career, mm-hmm. to come up with a great, big, beautiful part like that. The only sadness is it's not going to go in the West End. It would have been nice to have finished up in the West End. But um, I talk about finishing up and I sort of feel that there's, there isn't much I want to do after this, apart from Jago and Lightfoot. Yeah. <laughs> So you'll carry on doing that as long yes, as you keep yes. writing new scripts? Yes, I'll say to Big Finish, do you mind giving me a pension? <laughs> this production comes to the end in Bath and then retirement, is that? No, no, don't retire. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not going to actively yeah. look for work. If something nice comes up, I'll do it. Otherwise, I'll try and find out what it's like to be a normal human being. <laughs> Which would be quite interesting. Well, well, you know, I mean, if you spend all your life... Mm-hmm. Doing other parts and you're suddenly not doing them, you mm-hmm. sort of you begin to wonder who you are. Mm-hmm. It's quite intriguing. Insightful, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not an actor. So. It's been great talking to you. All right, um, lovely talking to you. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure to pick your brains a little bit about your time on Doctor Who. I hope the listeners uh, have enjoyed that. 
Thanks very much. Thank you very much. And goodbye to all you lovely listeners. So, as promised, the dates and locations for the Globes tour of the Merry Wives of Windsor. For our American listeners, first of all, they're going to be at the Eli and Edith Broad Stage, LA, from the 14th to the 24th of October. And then they'll be in New York at the Michael Schimmel Centre for the Performing Arts from the 28th of October to the 7th of November. Then back to the UK for four locations. Milton Keynes Theatre from the 16th to the 20th of November. The Norwich Theatre Royal from the 23rd to the 27th of November. Richmond Theatre from the 30th of November to the 4th of December. And finishing up at the Theatre Royal Bath from the 6th to the 11th of December. Well, thank you, thank you, Luke, for finding time in your busy schedule to go and do that for us. And like like James said, he was incredibly upset he couldn't make it there, and uh, Tom couldn't get down there either on on that day. But yeah, Luke, thank you very much, mate, and uh, we we hope you enjoyed yourself. It sounds like you did, and we hope our listeners out there enjoyed uh, Luke's interview with uh, Christopher Benjamin. And I think that's probably it for this episode of the DWP. Um, what have we got coming up next week, Trev? I'm glad you asked. Um, next week we have a review of the, uh, I suppose, semi-recent release of The King's Demons and Planet of Fire on DVD. We'll be in review mode next week, most definitely. Mm, looking forward to that, particularly the review of Planet of Fire, one of my favourite stories, I have to say, from Peter Davidson's era. And it's another story that's been given the treatment, hasn't it? It's got a complete new version of it on, which I'm sure is going to generate some interesting discussion. Well, let's save that <laughs> for next week. We Absolutely. Don't get too fired up now, do we? So oh. we, we will say adieu to you all and uh, goodbye, James. Goodbye, Trev. It's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye for now. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.